Welcome to the CI Podcast, an opportunity to open God's Word together, learn more about who Jesus is, and know how to follow Him in the world today. Hi, and welcome back to the CI Podcast. We are now on part four of our four-part Bible series. Jim, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, Judy. I can't complain. How have the last few weeks been for you? And uh, not a massive amount of change, I have to say. I mean, coming out of lockdown has been quite good. Great. So to go back and kind of review what we've done before, um, the last person we looked at was Daniel. So this week we're looking at the character of Hagar in the Bible in our series, People Who Faced Uncertainty. Do you want to give us a little introduction to why we've chosen this character? Yeah, she's a rather remote character and the, 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 the context is definitely culturally remote. Um, but... She's very famous because she she uh, she gives God a name, the only person in Scripture ever to name God, uh, and she calls him the God who sees. So we want to be thinking about that, um, that idea of being seen. So what I'd like to do is maybe think a little bit Hagar, and then Judy will maybe move to the New Testament, and we're going to look at a portion of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which again has a lot uh, to say about being seen. So that's that's the idea now. I should say, probably at the start of this study, it's going to look and feel very far from our culture. But I am convinced that when we get into the heart of the thing, we're going to encounter an issue uh, and some teaching that is absolutely essential to young students today, um, right into the heart of our culture. Okay, Brilliant. That's great. Okay, so I suppose we should get into it then with our Bibles open. Um, feel free there to grab a cup of coffee and join us. Um, so we're opening our Bibles to Genesis 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was named Be'er Lahal Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Berea. And Hagar bore Abram a son. 
and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Great. So, great passage there, but we have to start by admitting that Genesis 16 is one of those parts of the Old Testament that seems culturally remote. Um, So let's start by thinking about the context here. What is going on between Abraham and Sarah? Yes. (laughs) That chapter is a bit of a shock to the system, isn't it? Um, I mean, the Old Testament devotes an awful lot of attention to Abraham, and, and the New Testament explains why. In Romans 4, we see that Abraham is the prototype of faith. Um, so when we study the life of Abraham, uh, we do so primarily to understand what faith is. Uh, we see the real struggles that he had and that we will have uh, as we live by faith. So in terms of the story, Abraham is called by God to leave his comfortable uh, uh, materialistic life in Ur of the Chaldees uh, and to live as a pilgrim. He, he has to live in a tent uh, because he was dedicating his life to the pursuit of spiritual goals. Uh, as the Hebrew of Hebrews puts it, um, Abraham was looking for an eternal city. Okay, So he wanted to know God's blessing in his life rather than the mere comforts of a materialistic life. Now, Abraham, of course, is a towering figure in the Bible story, but he did make mistakes. Right? And, and this story is most certainly one of his mistakes. <laughs> the, the, the vehicle of all of God's blessing in Abraham's life was going to be through his son Isaac. Abraham and his wife were childless. Uh, They're both very old uh, in this story. Uh, He's 86. But God had promised a son to this couple. Abraham knew the thing was biologically impossible, but he believed God's promises. And that is the very heart of faith, to believe God's promises, to treat them as true and trustworthy, things that can be leaned upon. Okay. Anyway, the years went by, and it looked as if the promise wasn't going to be fulfilled. No sign of a son coming along. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, had a, a cunning scheme, to quote Baldrick. God's plan uh, to give us a son uh, is an excellent plan, she said. Uh, but he clearly, God does, he, he clearly needs a helping hand uh, uh, with his scheme. So she thought to herself, I'll just help him along a bit by developing a, a, a plan B for the implementation of the divine plan. She had a little servant girl called Hagar, and she suggested to Abraham that Hagar become his concubine. Um, and that he get her pregnant with a child. And that child would be the vehicle by which God would bless them and the whole world. Okay, So that's the context. There's quite a lot of polygamy in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Jacob had more than one wife. Does the Bible support polygamy? <laughs> Absolutely not. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that it agrees with it. Okay, In fact, the greatest argument against polygamy is found in Genesis. I mean, Jacob's domestic arrangements don't bear thinking about. Um, polygamy was always a disaster. I mean, just think of that moment uh, when Joseph's brothers uh, set out to kill him. Um, now, that jealousy all arose because of polygamy, uh, because of the dreadful war going on between Leah and Rachel. And you find the same disaster unfolding in this chapter. Polygamy always produces discord and disharmony. And that is the strong lesson taught by Genesis. So the Bible does not approve of polygamy. I mean, when you move away from the design plan, for marriage given in Genesis chapter 1, life always becomes difficult and messy. Okay. So why then does the Bible contain stories like this? What could Christian students in the 21st century in Ireland learn from an ancient story like this? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I mean, so many students just find the Old Testament odd and uh, peculiar. Um, it just seems so culturally remote. Well... The, the first thing to say is that Christianity is not a philosophy. Okay? It isn't just a set of ideas. 
that claims to be truth revealed in history. So we are reading real historical facts about how God patiently constructed a pathway into human history and that he built a road that eventually led to the coming of the Messiah, Abraham's promised seed. So that's the first thing. This is history and Christianity is history revealed in truth. That's the first point. But the New Testament also says that these ancient stories are written for our instruction. Okay, They're here to help us understand what God is doing in our, in our lives. Um, I remember David Gooding once saying that the Old Testament enriches our imaginations. In other words, it brings colour to the truths of the New Testament. I mean, our brains, for example, are wired to appreciate narrative. So this ancient story, which seems so odd to us, it's going to teach us something really important. And I just, you just have to trust me here, Judy, because by the end of this study, I think we're going to see something that lies at the heart of every student's life in the 21st century. So anyway, the big contrast being set up here is between Hagar's son, who's called Ishmael, and God's promised son called Isaac, who will be given through Sarah. So Ishmael is the son of the flesh, as it were, the son of human thinking. And Isaac is the son of the promise. In other words, Ishmael was the product of natural thinking, of Sarah's cunning scheme, her plan B, while Isaac is the product of faith in God's promises. So in theological language, Ishmael represents the works of the flesh, and Isaac represents the works of faith. And the struggle between those two boys and their descendants is a vivid picture of the struggle Christians face uh, with what Paul calls the flesh. So that's that's the context, okay, the theological context. Okay, so... Christians can try and live their lives in the power of the flesh, but what does that actually look like in practice? Well, this is where the power of the narrative helps us understand it. I mean, just think about the disaster of trying to live a life in the power of the religious flesh. It's the main source of frustration and disillusionment in the Christian life, undoubtedly. We start off wanting to do something for God, but then we try to do it in the power of our own sinful natures. I mean, how many churches, how many Christian unions have been disturbed by people who thought they were standing for God's truth, but stood for it in this ugly, fleshly energy of their own power. See, it's never enough to work for God. We must work for God in the right way, by faith, and not in the sheer power of our own natures. I mean, I've seen churches wrecked by pride and ambition, and and I have to say sheer nastiness, because that's what happens when people try to work for God in the power of their own flesh. Yeah. So the Christian scene today is littered with story of of fleshly leaders. I mean, just look at what comes up on our social media feeds. Christian leaders, fleshly leaders who then blew up and walked away from their profession of faith. And those men are Ishmael's. Okay, in other words, they're the product of fleshly energies rather than the result of genuine faith in God's promises. So in verse 6 then we read that Sarah mistreated Hagar so badly that the girl ran away. What does that incident in particular teach us? Yeah, well, one of the hallmarks of fleshly power is harshness. Right? Always seems to come down to a power struggle. So Christians can end up treating each other harshly, even sometimes with malice or even cruelty. And these things all happen when we follow Sarah's plan, the plan B, the cunning scheme which thinks that God somehow needs a bit of a helping hand. And so instead of trusting his promises, we do things in the power of our own sinful nature. So that makes a bit of sense of the context. We want to consider more closely about the second half of the chapter and think about Hagar as a person in a terrible circumstance. So in verse 8, the angel of the Lord asks her, where have you come from and where are you going to? What is the significance of that question? (laughs) 
It's interesting, you know, uh, Hagar is only able to answer the first clause of that sentence, of that question. She knew that she had run away from Sarah, but she had no idea where she was heading. And there's something really poignant in that moment, I think. Because sometimes in life we just run away. Right? We define progress in terms of reacting against the past rather than having a sense of a goal for the future. Now, Hagar's fight was understandable, but it was profoundly unwise. She was about to die in the desert. I mean, I sometimes sit beside students who have made decisions that at their heart are all about running away from a situation rather than dealing with it. Now, Hagar never sorted out her relationship with Sarah. In fact, when you look at the whole story of the relationship in chapter 21, when you look at that relationship between the two women, we see that neither is blameless. But as a general rule, running away from a problem usually doesn't work, and they always end up, our problems always end up following us. Yeah. Also in verse 8, the angel of the Lord calls Hagar by her name. Is that significant and why? Yeah, I mean, I think the literary genius of the author here is evident. Um, if you noticed in the earlier verses, Abraham and Sarah never call the girl by her name. Um, she's called the servant or the slave, actually. But God calls her by name. Yeah. It reminds me of John 10, you know, when the good shepherd says that his sheep know him for he calls him by name. And I think there's even a little hint of an allusion to that moment uh, when you get to John 20, you know, when the risen Christ calls Mary Magdalene by her name. Yeah. So you see the care which God has for each of us as, as, as individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and speaking of names, I mean, in verses 11 and 12, there's a prophecy about Hagar's child, and she is to name him Ishmael. And it says he'll become a wild donkey of a man. What is that all about? <laughs> it's not the sort of thing you'd read in a Hallmark card. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the prophecy meant that Hagar's child would be untamable. I mean, as uncontrollable as, as a wild donkey. Now, this is where the power of the narrative um, really grips our imaginations. Imagine Abraham trying to raise a boy who was completely unteachable. What a struggle it was to control him and to get a moment's peace. And that picture is very helpful when it comes to our relationship with the flesh. Paul says in Romans, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's in Romans 8. Yeah. Okay, let's now think about the key verse Verse 13, what is so important about the name that Hagar gives to God? In what sense does he see her? Mm. Well, this is, I mean, we've done a lot of hard spade work, but I hope it's useful because we now get to the really poignant moment in the story. Um, Hagar felt abandoned. I mean, like a piece of litter swirling in the gutter. And she felt invisible, as if no one cared for her or even saw her. There's a terrible moment in the New Testament um, when a wealthy man just steps over a beggar called Lazarus. He doesn't even acknowledge him as a human being. The beggar was invisible to the wealthy man. So the name Hagar gives to God recognizes that he never takes us for granted. He, we're never invisible to him. He always sees us, sees our pain and our hurt, our feelings of worthlessness. Okay. Now, that's very helpful um, background and a, a sort of a, a, an enriching colour that we can bring to bear on, on the New Testament passage. I, mean, I, I was wondering if you could just read the first 18 verses of yeah. Matthew 6. Okay, this is, this is the Lord speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, so Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then that like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret." And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Yes. Um, now, at first sight, uh, you might think, what on earth has that to do with Genesis 16? But I'm sure you noticed when you were reading, Judy, all the references to being seen in that chapter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It begins with, I think it's a hilarious picture of, of someone going into the temple to give money to the poor. Okay, But <laughs> this guy hires a couple of trumpeters um, to herald his entrance so that everyone can see his good works. Now, at long last, we get to something culturally relevant here. Because the modern-day equivalent of the trumpeters is, of course, Instagram. The Pharisee in Matthew 6 was virtue signaling. That's exactly what he was doing. And our culture spends a great deal of its time virtue signaling. Mm. Now, there were three illustrations in that portion you read in, in, in Matthew 6. The first is about giving money to the poor. The second is about public prayer. And the third is about fasting. So... People are parading their virtue by uh, by using long-winded, impressive prayers. Um, they want, at that point, they want to see other people see their religiosity. And then, as I say, the final illustration is about fasting. And here, the virtual signalers want other people to see their pain and their sacrifice. So, when you put the three illustrations together, you see people who are desperate to be seen by others. They want people to see their good works, their religious fervor, and their painful sacrifice. Now, the whole idea behind those pictures is the idea of being seen. Our culture assumes that in order to matter, you have to be seen. Now, here's the crucial point. There is a sense in which that is true. Right? The notion of being seen is an essential part of humanness. The crucial point, however, is to ask, who is doing the seeing? Okay? So time and time again in Matthew 6, the Lord contrasts the admiration of strangers with what we might call the approving look of our Father in heaven. He sees what is done in secret. He says that repeatedly, doesn't he? Your Father in heaven who sees. Your Father in heaven who sees. So the big teaching point here is this. 
Don't worry if you're invisible to the world. The basis of your self-worth should be the same as Hagar's. God sees you. He values you. He watches your quiet devotion, your unseen service. You don't trumpet all around the place. He hears your private prayers. He knows the pain you conceal in your heart. He is the God who sees. And because your Father in heaven sees you, you will never be invisible. Yeah. I mean, so much of our culture today is focused on the importance of being seen. I mean, we're now living in a time where being cancelled online is such a big fear. Um, Social media platforms are really all about that. What is the antidote then to that desire to be admired by others? Well, I think the trick is to realise that the admiration of strangers is a counterfeit of a real thing. Not just a bad thing, it's a counterfeit of a real thing. Okay. In other words, we shouldn't just dismiss it as a bad thing. The idea of being seen, of being appreciated and valued, is a vitally important aspect of the human condition. So, social media platforms are actually appealing to a basic human need. But Christianity's unique and beautiful solution is to hold out the real thing rather than the counterfeit. When strangers admire you, they don't love you. Because in order to be loved, you have to be known. But our Father in Heaven knows us intimately, and He loves us. So by being seen by him, valued by him, appreciated by him, that's infinitely more valuable than 100 likes on a profile picture. Yeah, that's so true. There's a great quote from Oz Guinness from the book The Call, Live to the Audience of One, um, which is a great thing to remember. Brilliant quote. How do we develop the sort of intimate knowledge of God the Father that the Lord Jesus talks about in Matthew 6? Okay, well, given that this is our final podcast um, in this little series, uh, I, you're going to hear the galloping hooves of a hobby horse. I, I have done pastoral work um, with students for maybe 15 years in, in, in any sensible you know, level of concentration. And the point I'm now going to make, I think, is, is the most important point um, for your generation in, in, in this culture, Judy. And it's about our relationship with God the Father. I think there's a real danger that young Christians have a schizophrenic notion of God. We love Jesus. He's warm and human and accessible. But there's this slight fear of uh, the God who is the judge and 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 uh, the one who is stern and is sort of marking our homework. But what we need to come to an appreciation of is this. We need to be introduced to the Father that Jesus loved. And I think if young Christians could develop a truly intimate relationship with their Father in heaven, um, then an awful lot of the psychological issues which your generation struggles with would be solved. When you think about it, what is the Lord Jesus doing, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount? He's not really talking about himself. He's introducing us to the Father. How does he teach us to pray? He doesn't teach us to pray to himself. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, it's an astonishing and uniquely Christian idea. Uh, Muslims have 99 names for God, but not one of them is Father. Uh, And I, I, I think the development of a warm, trusting relationship with God the Father, not being afraid of him, not having a schizophrenic notion of God, is crucial. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How do you develop that? So I remember a long time ago, there was a program on TV in the days when I had a TV uh, before I got too upset with the BBC to pay the licence fee. Uh, I, um, it was called Total Wipeout, I think. Yes, yes remember I remember that? that show well. Yes. It's great. It was, it was sort of, uh, I don't know, people competed on some sort of assault 
course, I think, wasn't it? I mean, I, I think they, they jumped around big red spheres, yes. remember them, yes, being... Impossible obstacles yeah, to and, and they, stand they, on. they climbed ropes and avoided machines that sort of threw them off balance and so forth. Now, apparently, I've never seen it, but apparently the Americans have an equivalent program, and they call theirs Ninja Warrior. And the difference between those two titles says a great deal about the difference between the British and the American yes. psyche. <laughs> but anyway, um, so uh, the context here, when I was, when I was, when I, I'm going to tell you this, the, the story in a moment, but the context was so to look it up. I looked up about this American Ninja Warrior program. I mean, there's no doubt about it, the strength and the balance of the competitors are amazing. I mean, the course is unimaginably tough. You know, they have to hang from rings and swing across these terrifying chasms and jump up on these tiny high platforms up on the ground and everything. Anyway, here's the story. There, there's a lovely clip uh, on, on YouTube um, some years ago, I think now, um, of a father and a daughter. And obviously the little girl, who was only five years old, uh, uh, loved this Ninja Warrior program, okay? And uh, so her dad had constructed an obstacle course in the back garden. Right? And it was made from packing cases and tree stumps. And a, I think I remember a, a shopping trolley on top of the hut and so forth. Um, and in the video, it's just lovely because you can see the determination in the child's face as she overcomes her nervousness and she swings from one tree stump to another. And her dad is acting like the crowd on, on the TV show right? and cheering her, encouraging her as she overcomes her, 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 her obstacles. And finally, the little girl runs up a wooden ramp and she hits a gigantic red button and she's completed a perfect round. She says, I did it, Daddy, I did it. And she punches the air into light. Now, what was the father doing in that video? He wasn't just entertaining his daughter. No? He was preparing her for real life. He had designed an obstacle course that would stretch her. It was suitable for a five-year-old. I mean, she, but she probably got the occasional scalp in her hand or needed a plaster on her knee. But her father was watching her all the time, making sure she sustained no serious injury. And the girl was learning about confidence and taking risk, okay? Now, just as a thought experiment, imagine in the garden next door, um, the neighbor's child is lying down, um, eating a bag of donuts while playing a game on their smartphone, uh, which their father had bought for them, okay? Now, which child had the best father? Obviously the one who spent hours constructing the obstacle course. It was because he loved his daughter that he had designed a path that would stretch and develop her. He wasn't content just to keep his daughter occupied for an hour. He wanted to stretch and develop her. Now, that's a helpful way to understand our relationship with God the Father. I mean, think over the early years of your life. Well, all your years are early, but um, even earlier than, than that. I mean, maybe years ago, somebody in, in uni or in school was nasty to you, or you experienced unpopularity for a while. Now, if we were alone in the universe, then problems like that might have made us despair. But now when we look back on them, you can think of those problems as an obstacle course in the back garden. God the Father was willing you on. He had designed those challenges so that you could learn skills that you'd need later in life and in the world to come, actually. He clapped in appreciation when he saw his daughter treat her nasty work colleague with grace and fairness. Or he said a quiet well done when he saw his teenage son handle unpopularity with dignity and strength. He was disciplining you, developing you into a son or a daughter of the Most High. So I, I, I'm going to stop talking now because uh, I, I'm just, I'm so, I guess, obsessed with this idea. But I think that young Christians will, the most important thing they need is the psychological existential security of knowing God as their Father in Heaven, knowing his vast benevolent presence in their lives 
and knowing that the difficulties in life are like an obstacle course which God the Father has designed for them, knowing that he will not give us more than we can handle so that we become not just children of God, but sons and daughters of the Most High. Wonderful. Jim, thank you so much for your time today um, and wrapping that series up for us beautifully. Um, Is there anything else you want to add or any finishing? No, I just would like to return to Hagar and maybe somebody listening to us now of any age feels invisible, feels that the world doesn't even notice them. Well, remember that despairing, poignant moment in Hagar's life where she got the chance which nobody else in Scripture has ever had to name God. And what did she name him? The God who sees. So God sees you, he values you, and he appreciates you. Great. Jim, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the CI Podcast. Join us next time as Jim and I continue our conversation on characters in the Bible who have faced uncertainty. For now, stay safe and have a great rest of your day.